Welcome to the 1505 Club. In doctoring, we do the best we can with what we know, but when the data tell us something other than what we expect, we have to pivot to match our actions with the feedback we receive. For me, this podcast has turned out to be very similar to that. When we started, I expected that it would mostly be doctors and students wanting to hear from some of the amazing people we have out in the field. However, many of our listeners are not doctors or students, and the episodes that we've done where I've gone a bit deeper into a particular subject have turned out to be our most listened to episodes by a mile. Now, don't get me wrong. I still intend to bring you as many great guests as I possibly can, but it made me realize that people are really looking for something a bit deeper with a little more meat. I think people are also looking for more than just the technical aspects of what we do. So I wanted to expand this podcast to talk about a broader range of topics than what we've done to this point. So it's in that vein that I put together something a little different that I hope will help you on your journey. Today I'd like to talk about something a little different. We often spend so much time talking about the technical aspects of what we do in practice that we don't often talk about how we run our practices. So for that reason, I'd like to talk to you on the topic of how to create a high-value practice. One of the hallmarks, as you will soon see, of a high-value practice is that it also tends to be a referral-only practice. I know that if you're hearing that phrase for the first time, it probably makes a pit in your stomach just to hear it. Most chiropractors are so concerned about where they're going to get their next new patient that the concept of limiting your practice in any way or making it more difficult for people to get to you just seems crazy. So if you'll indulge me for the next little bit, I'd like to explain the rationale for practicing by referral only, something that I've done for the last five years, and we'll see if just maybe I can change your mind on this. Before we begin, I do want to tell you a little bit about my background. In addition to being a chiropractor, I have also owned a number of businesses outside the chiropractic spectrum. I'm working on another podcast where I'll tell you a little more about that, but I do want you to understand that my experience is not limited to chiropractic, but I've actually learned a lot of things from owning franchises and other businesses. So let's begin by talking about the typical chiropractic practice. One of the buzzwords that we hear a lot is high-volume practice. The important thing to know about a high-volume practice is that this is the default practice in chiropractic. If you follow your instincts and take the path of least resistance, you will build a high-volume practice whether you intend to or not. Now, I don't want you to confuse that with thinking that I'm saying your practice will see a lot of people. You can build a high-volume practice and still have it be empty. I'm not talking about how many people you actually see, but I'm saying that you will naturally build a practice with the capacity to see a large number of people, because the natural instinct and competency is to build a practice that makes money based on quantity. In other words, The natural instinct is to build a business based on quantity and not on quality. So, to make this point, let's deviate from chiropractic for just a moment and look at some examples in the general marketplace, and then we'll come back to chiropractic and apply it. Motel 6 is a hotel chain that everyone is familiar with. No doubt, you've probably even stayed at one at some point in your life. Motel 6 has over 1,400 motels with more than 85,000 rooms. Motel 6 has a gross profit of $191 million per year and their average room rate is $37 per night. Now, let's contrast that with the Ritz-Carlton hotels. The Ritz has 101 hotels. That's less than 10% as many hotels as the Motel 6, representing 27,650 rooms. The Ritz Ritz has an annual gross revenue of $3 billion. 
Let me present the same information in a slightly different way. Motel 6 has an annual average of $2,247 per room. That's gross revenue divided by the number of rooms. The Ritz-Carlton has an average of $108,000. i am sorry, I read that wrong. It is $108,499,000 per room. When you present it like that, the difference is staggering. $2,247 per room versus $108,499,000 per room. Absolutely mind-boggling. Now ask yourself this question. Is it any more work to clean a room at the Ritz-Carlton than it is at the Motel 6? Is it any cheaper to hire the labor to clean the room at the Motel 6 than it is at the Ritz? The reality is that it's more expensive at the Motel 6 for the simple reason that they have four times as many rooms, but they have the same number of hours in the day to get the rooms clean, so they require a much larger staff. If that does not convince you of the discrepancy, then let's do another one. Toyota is a very large car company, so large that we'll only discuss the sales of the Prius in the United States. Toyota sells approximately 100,000 Priuses every year in the United States. They do this at a stated profit of $3,100 per car. Some simple math leads us to the conclusion that their gross revenue on Prius sales alone is $310 million per year. Now, let's contrast that with Ferrari. Ferrari builds 7,000 cars per year for sale in the U.S., and they refuse to build even one car more than that. They do this at a stated profit of $80,000 per car. Again, our simple math gives us a gross annual revenue of $560 million per year. Now ask yourself this question. How much easier is it to build a great car when you only have to build 7,000 cars per year instead of 100,000 per year? To put that in perspective, Ferrari has to produce roughly 19 cars per day, while Toyota has to produce roughly 274 cars per day. Obviously, Toyota has a has much more labor-intensive approach that undoubtedly comes with higher overhead costs. That's why Ferrari can make so much more money per car than Toyota can. Before we move on, I want to be clear that I'm not saying that either way is the right way or the wrong way. As you can clearly see, both methods are highly profitable. My point is simply to suggest to you that there's a way to make more money that's less labor-intensive, and I think we should all be wise to at least consider it. Chances are, if I gave you a hotel chain, you would be far more likely to build a Motel 6 than you would to build a Ritz-Carlton. If I gave you an automobile manufacturer, you would be far more likely to build Toyota and to build a Prius than you would to build a Ferrari. The reason this is true is because the methods and techniques for building Motel 6 and Toyota are generally common sense, but the techniques and methods for building the Ritz and Ferrari are antithetical to common sense. More importantly, the risk of failure when building a company like the Ritz and Ferrari is undoubtedly many times higher. This is the primary reason why most people do not choose to go this route, and it's the reason why your instincts told you that a referral-based practice is career suicide. As we transition back to chiropractic, I'm going to give you the basic principles that the Ritz and Ferrari are built on, the same principles that you can use to build a referral-only practice. A referral-only practice is the chiropractic version of the Ritz-Carlton or Ferrari. Instead of building a high-volume practice by default, we want to build a high-value practice with intention. The first principle of building a high-value practice is that it's based on customer service. I know everyone thinks they have great customer service, but we need to consider how the practice runs from the customer's point of view. In other words, 
Most chiropractors, actually all doctors for that matter, build their practice around themselves. We don't necessarily do this consciously, but that's actually the point. The default position, if you don't intentionally move against it, is to build a practice based on your needs and sometimes even on your own wants. Horst Schultze ran the Ritz-Carlton for many years, and many of his policies maintain the Ritz-Carlton to this day. Horst Schultze has written a book called Excellence Wins. I highly recommend it if you have the desire to create a Ritz-Carlton level of customer service. Another great book for creating the ultimate customer experience is the book Be Our Guest, which gives great insight into how the Disney company creates the experience at their guest parks. To make this practical, here's a little exercise you can engage in that I'm sure will give you new insights. All you have to do is put yourself through the same experience your patients go through. You begin by physically walking through the front door. Pay attention to what your eye is drawn to first. Where do you naturally look, and how can you use this to enhance the experience? Walk yourself through an entire visit and take note of what you really like and what you really don't like. Then think about how you can fix it or make it better. The secret of a high-value practice is that you're never going to stop going through this process. You should repeat this exercise at least once a month. The more you focus on creating an experience based on the customer's perspective, the more you will distance yourself from the rest of the pack. The second principle is that a high-value practice has to be built on results and not simply going through the motions. The default position is that the patient come, comes in, I go through the motions, I make the adjustment, meaning I made some noise, and now they owe me money for the visit. That is the lowest possible position and it's the absolute least that could possibly be done and still get paid. A referral-based practice, and therefore a results-based practice, must focus on much, if, if not more, effort in the assessment than it does into the adjustment. What we can learn from our previous example of the Ritz and Ferrari is that this investment of time is always worth it. While it may be counterintuitive, taking more time per patient and investing more time will yield greater profits, but only if the time actually results in a higher level of quality and a better result. If Ferrari took the extra time to make their cars, but in the end, they were only producing a Prius, then that time is not well spent, and it's actually a waste of time. Once you stop wasting the time, you realize that you can make a bunch more cars, and now all you've done is to recreate Toyota instead of actually producing something different that is the antithesis of Toyota. For me, as well as for the other doctors that you've heard on this podcast, the extra time is well spent because we utilize the Gonstead system to such a degree that it allows us to attain results that many other chiropractors cannot obtain. I'm not saying that they lack the competence, although that could possibly be the case, but the number one reason why they cannot achieve the same results is because they don't put in the time. Their office structure simply does not allow it. Within the Gonstead system, we expect to invest more time in the assessment than we do in the adjustment. This makes the Gonstead system perfect for someone who intends to create a referral-based practice. I specifically remember one of my mentors told me that because I use the Gonstead system, I should see myself as the four seasons of, of chiropractic. That analogy has stuck with me for the duration of my career, as you can tell, and the benefits of such a point of view is more obvious to me now than it ever even was before. The third principle of a referral-based practice is that it's built on relationships. That isn't to imply that a high-volume practice is not built on relationships, but the relationship is quite different. The biggest difference has to do with trust. In the early years of my career, I discovered that new patients were often the most challenging appointments because you never knew how much trust or distrust they might be bringing with them. I would guess that at least half of my new patients, if not more, had seen a previous chiropractor. 
That meant that they came with a certain amount of expectation, but I had no ability to set that expectation or to even influence it. I found myself in the unenviable position of often feeling like I was selling something, chiropractic, even though I wasn't, and that was something I absolutely did not want to do. If you think about it, it's really difficult for me to tell you about myself and to try to create trust without sounding like a buffoon. I then realized that when people came in as a referral, they had an entirely different level of expectation, and I never had to sell anything, but I simply had to explain what I was doing and why I was doing it in a way that uniquely reflected their condition, and then I had to deliver on their expectation. It didn't take long to realize that I really only wanted to see the referrals, but it seemed crazy to actually try to keep the other people away. I then realized that the new patients off the street required more time and resources and often yield the lowest benefits because their expectations were often not in line with what I do and what I can offer. Why would I take time to engage in these situations with little payoff when the referrals had such a high payoff, meaning people who are referred are far more likely to refer if you can deliver for them? And then they deliver more people, which means in the end, I actually end up seeing more people instead of fewer people. So by limiting the practice, I gain access to more people, whereas when I open the door to everybody, I end up seeing fewer people. It's the exact opposite of what you would naturally expect. Let's just take a moment to talk about referrals. Think about this for yourself. What does it take for you to refer a business to your friends? A little thought, and you'll realize that it has a lot to do with your level of expectation. When you go to a restaurant, you expect them to deliver food to you, and you expect it to taste good. If they can deliver good-tasting food, that will make you satisfied, but it's not likely to make you want to give a referral. To get a referral, the food either needs to be outstanding or the experience needs to be amazing. Even if the food is outstanding, if the experience is less than expected, you still probably won't refer. You need to have at least one area that's in a league of its own, but everything else must, at the very least, meet their expectation. For us, as Gonstead doctors, our ability to get results is the element that is exceptional, and that gives us the ability to build a high-value practice if we choose to. For me, the result of my decision to build a high-value practice is that I get to spend less energy per patient, and that allows me to see more patients, even though it's clearly not as many patients as I probably would see if I was just running a high-volume practice. There's one other obvious thing that I'd like to point out about Ferrari and the Ritz. I would be willing to bet that you've never seen a commercial for either one of them. They simply don't advertise. The reason for this is that if you don't already know who they are by reputation, then you're not really their customer as far as they're concerned. As a young boy, I had a picture of a Ferrari on my wall, and I'm sure other young boys did as well. I would be shocked if even one young boy has a picture of a Prius on his wall. It's laughable, really. So why is that? So much of the value of a Ferrari and the Ritz is intangible. Those intangibles are created by the fact that they've already nailed everything that is tangible. If a Ferrari looked like a Prius, it wouldn't be as desirable. If a Ferrari ran like a Prius, it wouldn't be as desirable. If a Ferrari sounded like a Prius, it wouldn't be as desirable. Because it can do all of those things, it has a tangible value. But because they do all of those things with excellence and consistency, they've created additional value in excess of what they have tangibly created. This is the lesson that could and should be learned by everyone in healthcare. The biggest problem on the healthcare side is that our patients are incapable of accurately judging excellence. Just look at the popularity of some of the chiropractic videos on YouTube. The ones with the most views are often a train wreck because it's more about sensationalism or the Hollywood effect than it is about good science and technique. 
This is why patient education is so important, because Ferrari and the Ritz would not be where they are if their customers had no idea how to judge an excellent car or an excellent hotel. Ultimately, our two examples have gone beyond technical mastery, but they've created an experience. This is something that first caught my attention when listening to an Apple keynote address. I immediately noticed that Apple does not refer to anything they make as a product. For them, it's an iPhone experience or an iPad experience. We could theorize about what to call our current age, but in the misinformation age or the technology age, but I think the name that will most likely stick in the end is the experience age, because in this age of millennials, if you fail to deliver a unique experience, they really are not interested and you will be reduced to the level of a commodity. Speaking of such, we need to take just a moment to discuss this, is this issue as well. When I was in school, we were always told that all techniques work and chiropractic is chiropractic, but by California law, where I practice, one chiropractor is not allowed to claim that they are any better than any other chiropractor. That's all well and good, and I can understand that from a health science point of view. From a purely business perspective, that is the dumbest thing we could ever do to ourselves because it turns us into a commodity. A commodity is something like natural gas. No gas company can claim that their gas is any better than anyone else's gas because gas is gas, and either you have it or you don't. So when you're selling a commodity, People buy gas based on price alone, or in my town, they buy it because there's only one company that's selling it. When all chiropractors are the same, then the only reason people have for seeing one chiropractor or another is to go wherever it's the cheapest. And this begins what Seth Godin calls the race to the bottom. He also points out that the biggest problem with the race to the bottom is that you might win. The catch to all this is very simple. Be better. You don't have to say you are better. In fact, it's counterproductive if you do. You simply have to be better. So here's the principle. Advertising only matters when everyone is the same and mediocrity reigns. Does Rolex panic when Timex watches go on sale? Does Alaska Airlines freak out when Spirit Airlines changes their fees? No, of course not. They're looking for different customers. The low-cost choice has accepted the reality that they are a commodity and they have made a conscious choice to try to beat the others by charging the least. And they develop their business around that concept. But this approach only works on the customers that are already looking to pay the least. This is true in every industry, including all of healthcare and even chiropractic offices. There are absolutely patients out there who think that all chiropractors are the same and they're simply looking for the one who's willing to charge the least. The vast majority of chiropractors accept this as reality. So they then begin competing with each other to try to win that patient over to them simply by, because they are willing to charge less than the next guy. If price is the only criteria by which a patient is choosing their doctor, then I don't actually want that patient. And I'll even suggest that they see someone else in town. Like I said before, I have more patients than I have time to see. I'm not begging for patients, and I'm not willing to compromise what I do just to include someone. If that sounds harsh to you, then try going to the Ferrari dealer and give them your sob story about how you can't afford one of their cars, and then ask them to sell you a Ferrari at the price of a Prius. I think we all know what's going to happen. There is one more thing that I want to say about this issue of advertising. I seriously doubt that you've ever seen an ad for Ferrari or the Ritz. Yet you still know who they are because you heard about them from someone else. This defies conventional wisdom. You want to defy it even more? As I mentioned before, as a kid, I had a picture of a Ferrari on my bedroom wall. I did not have a picture of a Prius or any other Toyota product for that matter. Without advertising, the mystery and the unattainability of the Ferrari only adds to the desire to have one. 
it never takes away from it. When you're known for results, but you're not in people's faces, and you're seemingly unattainable, it only increases their desire to find you. So let me sum all this up by simply saying that what we're talking about here has everything to do with value. You want patients who value what you do because it's unique, it's different, and most importantly, it works. That means that instead of flowing with the current and building a high volume practice by default, you should swim against the current and create a high value practice instead. For example, if a patient suggests that they should see someone else like, if you can't drop everything and see me on a Sunday morning, then I might need to go find someone who can, then the best thing I can do is to let them go. In fact, I often encourage it. Something like, yeah, it sounds like that might be a good idea. The reason why is it's because my practice is built on value. And if a person doesn't value what I do, then they aren't part of my tribe and they're a drain on the practice and they're going to rob my time from other people. And they'll try to force me in decisions that will rob my, my other patients of my time. We owe it to our other patients to protect them against this type of bullying and abuse because that's ultimately what it is. This topic of value immediately flows into the issue of patient communication because the level to which the people can, uh, can and will value what we do is directly proportional to their ability to understand what we do. I don't really want to answer questions about why don't you lay people face up to pop their necks or it's more insulting version. Have you ever tried laying people face up as though I'm completely unaware that this is even an option? Or have you ever tried using a Y strap as though this is a highly advanced technique? To me, to be blunt, those are idiotic questions, which means I can easily train my high value people to answer them for me. And I do. I teach my patients about biomechanics and how joints actually work. It helps to, it helps to prevent them to prevent their own injuries, but it also safeguards them against stupid ideas that can't possibly help them, but try to impress them by making lots of noise. I always tell my patients that noise doesn't matter. What matters is the correction of the injured joints. Injured joints tend to swell, and swollen joints tend to not make much noise. Therefore, the adjustment you need the most, and the one that can potentially do the greatest good, is the one that's also the least likely to make much noise, although it's always possible that it will. In the end, it's the opposite of what most people expect, and there are plenty of shysters out there who are eager to take advantage of that fact. Most Gonstead doctors that I know are already doing these things regarding patient communication anyway. It's just they aren't doing it with the end goal in mind. As Joe Nego would say, most chiropractors aim at nothing and hit it with amazing accuracy. I love that quote, by the way. The idea here is to have a goal in mind so we aren't just going through the motions, but we're doing it to create a high-value practice. It has more value for the patients, but it also has more value for the doctor, and that will ultimately cause it to have more value for the profession as a whole. As I said before, this way of practicing may not be for everyone but I'd be willing to bet that you're probably already doing some of these things now. So if you want to try it out, here's what I would do. Don't change anything. Just keep doing everything that you're doing right now to attract new patients. But in addition to that, begin to implement some of these ideas with the intent that you're going to create value. Some of your patients will take advantage of the opportunity and you will quickly recognize who in your practice sees value in you and is eager to accept any value that we, you wish to give to them. That's how I started until I eventually made a shift and decided that I wanted to create a cash only, meaning no insurance, referral only, meaning no advertising practice. It was that decision that created a practice that has more patients than I'm physically capable of seeing. 
That's why I wanted to share it with you. My hope is that, if nothing else, it will get you to think more deeply about what you do and why you do it. We often focus so intensely on the technical aspects of what we do that we often neglect to think about how we deliver it. It's my intention to offer you some unique concepts in this area and to at least get you thinking about these issues. Due to the recent coronavirus issues and social distancing, I suddenly find myself with much more time to work on podcasts. So we're going to try to do, introduce a little something new called Midweek Philosophy. This is an idea that we came up with for all the students who are at schools that teach no philosophy. You know who you are. If you have anything in particular that you'd like to, us to address in these segments, please let us know. We would love to have material to, have, to guide us as to what you're really looking for and, and questions you may have. You can reach us by sending an email to the 1505 Club. That's T-H-E-1505 C-L-U-B at gmail.com. Enjoy your downtime, and we'll see you again soon.